Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the last sermon of our First Corinthians series. This is chapter 16. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to First Corinthians 16. If you don't have one, then just look underneath your chairs there and grab that white and blue one. It's all yours. You can have it. You can keep it. And uh, if you don't like that one, you can look in our lost and found. And there's probably some nice ones in there. People have left. You can take them. They've been there a while. So uh, we, uh, we, use, you, we usually read the text together. Uh, and so and if you're able, we'd ask you to stand and we'll read the entire text together. And then afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And this is just a recognition that this is God's word to us. And so since it is, we want to uh, be appreciative that he sent us this word, as well as um, willingly, why we say, thanks be to God, saying, I am submitting myself to the things I'm going to read and hear, and I want to obey them because I believe that God is speaking to me. So if you will, uh, let's stand and we'll read the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and then we'll pray and and jump in. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> You may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see, for I do, I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to the to such as these, and to, every, and to every worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made hope for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send, send you greetings, Aquil, greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for our Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that as we come to a close on this book uh, and we read through really just closing remarks and some kind of final thoughts from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, uh, though there's a lot of, uh, not much theology, but certainly a lot of practical 
uh, outworkings on how we should live. We pray that we would see these things, receive these things, a desire to have these things in our life. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me speak clearly, uh, concisely, as well as, God, uh, that the gospel would be understood and received by both believers and unbelievers as their only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and if this is your first week, uh, we've been taking a chapter at a time. And so this is week 16. Uh, the, the book itself is, is really kind of divided up into two major sections, where the first half of the book, uh, Chloe had written to Paul about s- some concerns, and he answers those concerns that she has in kind of the first half. The second half, the Corinthian church had written to Paul and had questions themselves, and he begins answering those questions in the second half of the book, chapter by chapter by chapter, and uh, in, in sections. And so we've kind of seen as we've gone to the end here that they had some questions about gifts, in which he answered in chapters 12, 13, and 14. They had questions on the resurrection, which we looked at last week. Chris preached a, an awesome sermon on the resurrection in chapter 15. And now as he's coming here, they have a couple more questions uh, that you can see. One is right there in verse 1, what about this collection? So he's going to answer them. And the second one is in verse 12, hey, what about Apollos? We've we've heard about Apollos. Apollos is a good speaker. We want to know if he's going to come visit us. Those are kind of those last kind of questions he's he's wrapping up. So he's answering those two. uh, And he's really in this last part, as I said, as uh, as we're praying, that these aren't necessarily filled with a ton of theology, these last thoughts, but there are really kind of three main things that he's going to talk about. Uh, and these three main things serve for us a good bit of practical outworking just in everyday life. So uh, as we're looking at this, uh, receive the things that we're going to see as helpful things in, in life and, and certainly um, practical in its nature. But the first section I want you to look at is verses 1 through 4. And this is the arrangements for the collection. So there's, there's a collection that they're going to have. This offering that Paul's referring to is going to go to Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 3. And Jerusalem at the time was the birthplace of Christianity. This is where it all kind of started in Acts 2. We've been studying through the book of Acts before we came to Corinth for 19 chapters. And we saw that really everything kind of started there in Pentecost in Jerusalem and, and worked out a lot, lot because of persecution. They left They left Jerusalem, but Paul wants to send an offering back to Jerusalem. And this collection that's happening is going to uh, help the the Christians in Jerusalem as well as Paul, as we're looking in in the city of Corinth, is on his second missionary journey. He has three of them, and this collection is also going to help fund him for his third missionary journey. Craig Blomberg says, this collection, which Paul refers in verse 1, formed a major enterprise of the third missionary journey that Paul is going to do. Uh, and significant numbers of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were, were very poor. And Paul spent a substantial energy trying to raise funds from the outlying Gentile churches so that the Gentiles could take this collection and send it back to these impoverished Jewish people who were in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And this was going to be very helpful in a, in a lot of, for a lot of reasons. And so Paul's raising these, these monies to send back from these Gentile churches in Asia and Europe to help meet the needs. Uh, But in addition to alleviating physical suffering, Paul undoubtedly saw this collection as an opportunity to bring greater unity within the church across Jewish and Gentile boundaries to pay off a spiritual debt of sort of uh, that the Gentile congregations owed to the mother church in Jerusalem and to demonstrate uh, the genuineness of 
uh, Gentile Christianity to the skeptical Jewish Christians. So the Jews that were in, in, in Jerusalem were kind of skeptical, like, are they really in Christ? We understand the Old Testament scriptures. Do they understand? And so this, this debt that they were going to kind of help or to pay for these, it's going to help them understand we really are believers, but it also is doing something different, which is crossing, which is always difficult, even in the 21st century, these, these different kind of cultural, racial boundaries, which is going to bring unity. So we, we certainly can see this as very helpful, even in today, where <clears throat> uh, those that, that don't look like us uh, also need for us to reach out to them, also need for us not to... Uh, adapt some kind of savior complex where we're, we're, we're wealthy and we're the savior, let me help you, but to come alongside fellow Christians who might need our hand and, and be beside them and say, I'm just like you, let me help. And while it's certainly easy to do that in our, in our uh, similar uh, ethnic culture, it's also just as pleasing to the Lord and I think very helpful that we do it across cultural uh, lines as what's going on here. So as we're going uh, through this, there's, there's really three principles that jump out uh, as we're looking at this. Read the text again. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to, to do this. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So here we see this kind of first principle. Blomberg quotes, quoting him says, it's natural as we read this, to take this verse as the first known reference in the Bible to a weekly offering as part of Christian worship, as part of the Christian worship service. So up until this point, we know that there's, there's things that should be in the Christian worship service, singing, preaching, the Lord's Supper. And Blomberg says that you can even say now that this verse is certainly uh, a good reference to take that there can be an, a weekly offering that can be added to the, the worship service. So the first guiding principle, these things are principles and applications. I'm, I'm not necessarily drawing out theology here for you, but these are good principles and applications. The first one, you can go ahead and put it up, is that we, could, should, we should consider giving weekly. Now, um, we, we, I do realize that there's a, a, a pattern to which we're paid. Some of us are paid weekly, some of us are paid monthly, and I'm not saying that you, you have to break your practices. I just think that it's helpful to think in this mindset. You, you can give monthly, you can give weekly, you can give bi-weekly, you can give you know, every whatever it is. But um, I think that it's helpful, at least for me, in my own personal life, that uh, I just kind of, Christian, we know what we make on the year. We divide that by 52, and we, we, we try to bring a check uh, each, each week. You can give online, whatever, but our, our mindset is, uh, because we believe the Lord's Supper the hearing of the word, singing, and giving as part of the worship service. We want to try to participate in every avenue of the service as we can every single week. And so this isn't a legalistic, hard and fast rule. You don't have to do this. You, you can do it however you want, right? I, I think there's tons of grace in the Lord's, uh, in, in the Lord's concern here. But I, I think this is helpful to think that we want to, as best as we can, strive to be a part of all of the worship service that we can be. And so uh, consider that, that you would uh, give weekly. To whatever church you go to, whether it's here or whatever, wherever you go. Uh, that's just a guiding principle. The second principle that you can see also um, is on the first day of the week, each of you do, is to put something aside and store it up. And then it has this little phrase, as he may prosper, as he may prosper. Uh, and this basically means um, as the Lord has blessed you or prospered you, you want to take that and proportionately give. So the second thing that we can look at this is that we, sh- we should consider giving proportionately as we have been blessed. Um, as you may prosper uh, just means as the Lord blesses you, always set aside proportions 
that go with that. So put simply, in the first century, you know, they didn't have paychecks like we do. Uh, they didn't have direct deposit either, right? There was, they just, at some times in their life, depending on the season, they would receive some kind of blessing, whether it be necessarily financial or even just what they were growing or whatever they were able to do. And Paul was saying, take those and set those aside in a proportionate amount. And as you do that, give those things to the Lord. So I think principally what we can say here, if we're wanting to apply it to our life is, um, as the Lord blesses you, there should be a proportional increase of generosity in your life, not a decrease. There should be a proportional increase of generosity in your life. And that doesn't necessarily just mean like to our church, right? That means to lots of things. You would want to give the money to the Lord's kingdom, not to your own kingdom. And what that looks like is, I trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. I don't need to tell you this. And if I told you, you'd just be mad at me for giving you something specific and saying, why not these seven other things, right? So I don't need to say anything. I trust the Holy Spirit. It means that, of course... A proportion, a portion, if you're a member, whatever m- church you're a member of, you give to. But also, beyond that, it means that you support uh, people in the church that have needs, that when they rise up, uh, whenever something happens, whether it's small things like bringing meals or larger things like we can't pay our bills, you, you take that proportion and you, you, you meet the people's needs. You can do it um, in, in a way they don't even know it's you. Uh, but you can do those things. You can also take those monies and, and bless your neighbors. When you have people around you uh, that, that are neighbors, perhaps you have neighbors, like we talked about the significance of Gentiles uh, funding these impoverished Jews. Perhaps you have neighbors that uh, would really be blessed by you, and you can come alongside people that, that aren't necessarily your same ethnic culture and be able to bless them. And that goes both ways, by the way. I'm not just saying uh, white people bless those that aren't white. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying whatever you are, you bless other people. It doesn't matter uh, where you are. But also, I think that it can also just mean that you, you support missionaries. You give a portion to your local church, but the Lord has blessed you. I know that there's a couple in our church that wanted to help build a church in India. And so they, they gave money to build a building. We're, we're wanting to build a building, and they wanted to help because it's way cheaper to do it outside of the U.S. Uh, and they, they help... Uh, fund a, a, a church that needed to build a building in India. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things which we talked about, um, which you'll hear at the end of the service. That we're we're going to talk about Stephen, who's here, my, my friend, uh, missionaries like Stephen that want to plant churches and help, help that happen. There's, there's all kinds of, just an array of things that if the Lord is blessing you financially, that you can use those monies uh, proportionately as you have been blessed to bless others. As, as the Lord blesses us, the principle, I think, is that we would only want to increase the way that we bless others. The third thing that I see is this. Verse 3, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> and here, this word gift is not the word gift like present. Instead, it's the word charis. It's the word charis, which means grace. So what he's saying is, when I arrive, I will send you those whom you accredit by letter to carry your your grace to Jerusalem. So this is pretty interesting. Paul, when he's in this, even in just this letter and elsewhere, uh, when he talks about money, a lot of times he doesn't just use the word money or gift. He uses words like fellowship or service or grace or blessing or divine service. This is the way he talks about money. He uses these kinds of terms. And as he does this, this is suggesting that this collection wasn't just money for Paul, but instead it was an active as uh, Blomberg says it was an active response to the grace of God that 
had come to Paul's life. And so he wanted to minister to other people because of the ministry that God had already done to him. What is that ministry that God had already done to him? This is the third principle, which is this. The third thing, and I think maybe this is the most important one of the three, is that we need to consider giving to be a gospel matter. Giving is a gospel matter. And so that's uh, all over the text of scriptures, but I'll, I'll at least give you maybe, which is my, my favorite text that helps us see uh, the grace of God and the gospel and how it applies to giving. But we could talk about how it applies to giving, but I would actually want to start with, and most importantly, talk about, talk about the grace of God in Christ to us. The good news of, God, of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What this means is, before the incarnation, before Christ came, he was already alive. It wasn't like Jesus was created, right? Jesus is God, he always was, and he was in heaven, enjoying what, as it says, uh, the grace of God that before uh, he was born, or before the incarnation, he was already rich, enjoying the richness of being in the Trinity, the fellowship of being in the... and, and uh, fellowship of being with God forever. He left that richness to become poor, to incarnate himself as a human. And he only had one purpose, is to come here and to live a perfect life as a human. That is a major step down to become, to become human for God. And so he did that willingly in order that when he did that, because we were already poor, that the great switch happened, though. In his richness, he became poor so that in our poverty of our sin, we, not, we might now become, if we trust in Christ, become rich in grace. We might become rich in forgiveness. And so this great exchange has happened, that God has demonstrated to us the good news by sending his son so that we can now be recipients of this abundant grace. We are uh, fully re- reconciled to God all of our sins forgiven if we're in Christ. So like for me this week, specifically for hearing this this week, it's been, it's been life-altering. And it is every week, right? There's, there's, for those of you that, that have had just the toughest week because this week um, temptation has overcome you. You're in Christ. But temptation has overcome you to the degree to where you are deeply saddened because you've given in over and over to temptation. This gospel is for you. Christ knew that already and still in his richness became poor so that you, child of God, would be completely forgiven of that and then ushered into his presence, as, not as a servant, as a son or daughter of the king, forgiven. Perhaps this week you've been sinned against and you feel dirty, you feel unclean because of that. The good news is that Even the sin, not that you've done, but that's been done against you, has been washed clean because of the gospel. Perhaps you've just watched friends and loved ones have a a difficult time, or uh, life's been difficult to them this week. The gospel's good for them as well, that God comes to us in our desperate time of, of trial and tribulations and comforts us. Then those that are his children, he treats as sons and daughters. So this is a gospel issue But we need to understand the richness and fullness of the gospel. That whenever God gave us Christ, he didn't withhold anything. He lavished grace upon grace by giving us his son. And so, in like manner, we want to give 
in the same way that God was willing to give us Christ. And so we want to lavish grace upon grace to our fellow man as a demonstration that we have received this grace. So those, those are the first three things that we can see in that text. Um, and then we can ask the question, well, did the Corinthian church, who was messy, right? <laughs> they struggled. They were, they were difficult people. They, they had a lot, of, a lot of crazy stuff going on there. Did they get Paul's message? Did they understand and say, okay, we're going to do that? Well, the answer is they did follow through. We can see that actually in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. Uh, Paul's talking to the Romans, talking about the Corinthians who lived in the region of Macedonia. And he said, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm bringing the aid to the saints. That means it did happen. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So they did do this. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them for the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be uh, of service uh, to them of material blessings. So the Corinthian church, this messy church that, that's, that's had lots of things happen in their church where Paul's pretty aggressive in his language towards them, still saw the grace of God, understood the grace of God, and he's going to cover that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, th- those two chapters through giving. And they do come through and they, they get it and they see giving as a gospel issue. And since they have been lavished with grace, they lavish their material gift, charis, grace towards others. That's the first section. As I said, uh, this is the end of the chapter, right? So these, these are kind of just Paul's closing thoughts. And each kind of section isn't necessarily intertwined. So these are, these are concluding matters. The second concluding matter that we're going to see in verses 5 through 12 uh, is discipleship plans. So um, you can go ahead and put up number two. Discipleship and travel plans for Paul, Timothy, and Apollos. The first thing um, is... I'm going to try to make some preliminary marks, but all of our applications that we're going to see here are, are going to be couched in the, uh, the idea of discipleship, since this is what Paul is really ultimately talking about in verses 5 through 12, when he's making these travel plans and, and kind of just closing these travel plans to the Corinthian church. It isn't just haphazard kind of, I need to, I need to fill up this last part of, my, uh, part of my quill here, or piece of paper, so parchment, so let me just write some stuff. In giving the travel plans to them, we can pull out of that this amazing heart for discipleship Paul has and take some of those, there's, there's five things, take those things and apply them to our own life on the way that we do discipleship just by looking at Paul's travel plans. So I want, to, I want you to see those, those things. And the reason why I want you to see those things is because every one of us, like Paul, we're not going to be Paul, right? Uh, maybe you are, but most of us aren't going to live a life like Paul. We're going to live in Rock Hill. We're going to do our job. But every single one of us still has a task of discipleship if we're believers. So we can take the things that he's going to do in his extraordinarily live life for Christ, which you, by the way, have an extraordinarily life to live for Christ, and apply those things in the way that we do discipleship in our job and in our families and our work, work, coworkers and neighbors. First, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. So the first thing I want you to see is just this, this great kind of other-mindedness other that dominates Paul's thoughts. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through this. So um, the first, you can go ahead and put it up. The first thing I want you to see is that effective disciple-makers have a continual kind of other-mindedness that do- dominates their thoughts. Now, this is contrary to the way I live my life, sadly, And maybe you can identify with this. But 
My-mindedness is usually self-mindedness, FUD-mindedness. What's going to help FUD today? What's going to help FUD this hour? What does FUD want to do? But that's not how Paul, I mean, he's already starting saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to make sure that as I think about my travel plans, I'm, I can pass through Macedonia so that I can think ahead, plan ahead, thinking of others, make sure that I can see him. And productive discipleship or effective discipleship has this kind of quality. Your plans, your thoughts of your day, your week, your month, your year are intentionally thinking about other people as you fill up your calendar, not yourself. Now, I'm guilty of this, right? When I see this, I'm like, ah, I want to do that. But um, we want to make sure as we think about the way we're just even living our life and filling up our calendar that we're getting around to people, not around to just what we want to do. Not just what we want to do. So effective disciple makers have a continual other mind, other's mindedness that dominates their thoughts in the way that they think about their day, their week, their month, their year. And he's saying, as I'm, after, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. I'm going to pass through there. I want to come over to Corinth and make sure I see you. Um, the next thing that you can see is in verses 6 and 7. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you just in passing. Oh, man, this is, this is convicting. This is convicting, especially when you couch it in discipleship. Look, I hope to spend some time with you, of course, if the Lord permits. This is yielding to the sovereignty of God. I could die tomorrow. So the second thing I want you to pull out of here is effective disciple makers realize discipleship is not just about quality of time, but also quantity. Also quantity. In our day and time, it's all about quality. I'm going to pack in the next 10 minutes so much community and fellowship with you, it's going to be the most unbelievable 10 minutes, but then i got to go, right? So Paul's like, um, that's good. It is about quality, but it's also about quantity. I hope to spend the whole winter with you. I don't want to just see you in passing. In our technology kind of field where we can FaceTime each other now, isn't it just like very little quantity where we just hang it? I want to spend some time with you. Paul's intentionally making sure that he has a, uh, Blomberg says, Paul wanted to have a significant period of time with the troubled Corinthians in hopes of substantially improving the situation in the church here. They had serious problems, and it wasn't just going to be like fixed in an awesome 10 minutes. He needed to be there for a while. There's people in your life that need this. They need your wisdom, they need your quality, but they need your quantity. They need to be in your life be in your family. They need to see you more than once or twice a week. They need to see you a lot. So it is about quality, but I also think effective discipleship is about quantity, quantity of time. The next thing that we can see is this, verses 8 and 9. Uh, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for, so he, he's going to be, I'm coming to Corinth, but I gotta, I'm going to be in Ephesus until I come there, until Pentecost happens, they started a celebration of Pentecost by now. Uh, the Acts 2, you can read Acts 2 if you want to know. What, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So a wide door had opened to them. And so the third thing I want you to see is that effective disciple makers are in tune with the open doors that God puts around them. Open doors put around them. It should say that God puts around them. Typo. Uh, they're... they're um, in tune with the open doors that God puts around them. So we could just say that, and that's good. But I had to add this last part because sometimes we're completely in tune with the open door. Like, look at that open door. Man, I'm going I'm to walk through that one day. It's going to be awesome when I'm 20 or when I'm 30. I'm... But they walk through it, right? They, they are aware of it, 
And they're not just saying, man, that one day, that's going to be awesome when I'm doing that. But they walk through the open door. They see it, and they actually start doing it. Um, Paul, as he's doing this in, in Ephesus, this, this effective discipleship that, of open door he's going to walk is going to include some remarkable conversions of, of people and where they're turning away from idols. If you go this week and read Acts chapters 19 and 20, which we will be studying very soon again when we get back into Acts, we'll see this amazing ministry that Paul has in the city of Ephesus. Um, very effective ministry. So you could read the book of Ephesians as Paul lays out uh, in, in a book form the discipleship needed there and the theology that couples with it. This door of ministry was massively wide. And because Paul walked through it, Paul didn't likely know this, but because Paul walked through it, we're still reaping the benefits of that with the letter of Ephesians, with the chapters of Acts 19 and 20, being able to reap the, the unbelievable benefits from it that he, that he uh, got from it. If you've read Ephesians 5 as husband and wife, you've reaped some benefits from that. If you've read Ephesians to this amazing gospel laid out for us. If you've read Ephesians 6 and seen the armor of God, we're still reaping the benefits 2,000 years later because we all walked through this door. So the question is, what open doors Jesus got for you right now? There's one for every single one of you. Big or small, no matter how old you are. There's a door right now for effective ministry, wide open right here. Are you walking through it or just amazed at the doors there? And even further, are you going to walk through it? And then, because like Paul had no idea the amazing benefits that would reap 2,000 2000 years later, you don't either. Huge benefits could uh, come. I I hate to say it that way. Benefits to the kingdom of God. Like Jesus is like, just walk through it, I need you. I mean, he's sovereign. He 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 can grow his kingdom, right? But at the same time, the kingdom can grow in amazing ways through you. Ways that you could never dream. And, and don't say you're the unlikely candidate for that. Other people need to do that. That are more gifted, more, more talented, more, more theological, blah, 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 blah. No, that's not true. There's a door for you to walk through and God is going to use it. So are you going to? Paul saw this. And you might be thinking that makes me nervous. I don't know if I can do it. And I mean, that, that, that walks us right into our fourth principle. Because he says... I'm going to walk through this door, this huge door, and there are many adversaries. He's already acknowledging ahead of time, there's adversaries. So the fourth one is this. Effective disciple makers don't flee at the first sign of adversaries. It's easy, I think. This might just be me. It's fine. It's easy to flee whenever it gets tough to do discipleship. I'm guilty. Oh, this is going to be really tough. This is so hard. This, this sinner, it seems to be really messy. More messy than this other sinner that I've been talking to. This sinner is so messy. I don't know if I can, I can do that. I'm going to have to clock out on this one and hope God sends the next person. I'm going to go back over to the easy one, right? So effective disciple makers don't flee at the first sign of adversity. It's, it's, it's going to be tough, right? That's okay. Paul is recognizing that from the beginning. There was uh, opposition for Paul uh, and town riots and occult opposition as he's going there. Likely that's not happening to you, right? People aren't coming out to kill you and you're not fighting the occult. And he still says, that's a pretty big adversary, I'm going to walk through it. So, if, if we all fled at the first sign of adversaries, there would not be a pastor in the world. <laughs> or a church planner. There would be no church planners, there would be no churches. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have anybody to come listen to. Like, there would be no pastors, because it's difficult, right? Ministry is difficult. 
And so effective disciple makers don't flee at adversity. Instead, they press into Christ and Christ is their portion through it. And it's the same for you. It's the exact same for you. Um, but also, as we've been looking at this thoughts on discipleship to where we're kind of the all, we're the lone ranger. I've kind of even almost accidentally painted the picture. It's, it's your door. You get after it, man. By yourself, right? The fifth one is this. Effective disciple makers realize they can't do it by themselves. That's, that's, that's the whole point of why he's talking about Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way. So there's help being given to Timothy, and Paul wants Timothy back that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers, with more people. Paul is absolutely aware, and we all need to be, that effective discipleship is absolutely um, needing other people around them to help them. So you're not the Lone Ranger. You don't need to try to do this by yourself. The Lord has called you to it, but I promise you he's called other people to help you. This door isn't just a single walkthrough, right? It's, it's big enough for more people to walk through it with you and help you in that ministry. So don't try to go at it alone. At Remedy, and this is just Remedy, there's numerous ways this can play itself out. But at Remedy, we have formed this in our community groups to where you do ministry with your community group, 10, 12, 15 people, whatever the size of the group, that you would see that it's easiest to do ministry in a group of people where there's accountability and similar interests and uh, we're going we're gonna to push each other on and it's always fun to have someone with my side when I'm doing ministry. That's, that's the way we've done it at Remedy. And so I encourage you to get in a community group where you'll find doing mission together with other people is easier. So that's the fifth thing. Uh, the last section is going into, well, you can also see this in verse 12. Um, it's not up there, but the effective disciple makers realize they can't do it by themselves. You could add this last little tagline uh, about Apollos, where, and not everyone's going to help you, but don't give up, right? Look at verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, they asked this question, what about Apollos? Is he ever going to come see us? I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will. It, it, was, it can be translated as not God's will, but it, it's likely Apollos was just like, nah, I ain't doing it. Mm-mm. That church messed up. They've got a lot of problems. You've read chapter 5, right, Paul? <laughs> They've got some serious issues. I'm not doing that. Uh, and this last little, he'll come when he has the opportunity. I feel like Apollo said, I'll go when I have the opportunity. <laughs> I feel like Paul, Apollo said that. Maybe not, right? But at that, I think that the last little point is you can't do it by yourself, but don't give up just because people might not help you. Um, I, if you've read the Apostle Paul, his personality is just the most type A, like he's off the charts type A. And when Paul says, I strongly urged him, can you imagine this conversation where Paul is like, Apollos, the strong urging of him, and then saying no to Paul? I can't even imagine that conversation. Um, but maybe that's why he kind of down talked to Apollos in chapter one. That's just my thought. Anyway, uh, it has nothing to do with really anything spiritual. That's just my thought. But Apollos was an amazing preacher, it tells us in Acts 19. So don't be necessarily down if everybody doesn't help you. The Lord has people there. If the first, if your Apollos is telling you no, there's a Timothy that's going to tell you yes. Let's do this together. Let's take this hill. Um, the third thing I want you to see is really this final exhortation. It seems to be out of, out of, uh, out of sorts, but look at verse 13 and 14. Um, this is the kind of the closing exhortation. So the third section 
closing exhortation. Uh, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you be done in love. So here's a five-fold exhortation. All imperatives, these are things, these are, these are in the command form, do these things. You can go ahead and put it up. They're all going to be on the, on the, I mean, you can just write it out of your Bible, but there they are. Um, and so be watchful. This is a command to be on guard. This is him saying that you need to be vigilant against the world and its threats because they're going to come and try to throw you off your faith in Christ and be watchful. Be, be ready, knowing that there is a roaring lion that who seeks to devour you. Be watchful. But he also stand firm in the faith. Now, there's a lot of ways we could say stand firm in the faith. We could go to Colossians 1. We could go back to 1 Corinthians 15. A lot of things. But uh, one of the commentators pointed this out, and I thought, you know, that's really good. Um, I think what Paul's trying to do, and I, this isn't mine. This is what one commentator said. Note the definite article. Not stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in the faith. So the faith that's been passed on from generation to generation, that's our hope. It's not, I'm not hoping in me being able to have faith. No. I'm hoping in the faith, the good news of the gospel that's been passed on. My hope's in Christ and what he's done for me, not my fickle heart and that I can have enough hope today. So, Stand firm in the faith. Emphasis on the faith that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Stand firm in the, go- the gospel. Not in my and your, likely, fickle ho- hearts that don't necessarily trust God all the time. Stand firm in what Christ has done. The next one is act like men. Act like men. Now, <clears throat> all the ladies are like, well... That's not me. So it, it's not that. It, it's, it's literally, and this doesn't necessarily help, I'll explain, be manly. That's what it's, so it's, not, it's actually not even calling you to be macho, right? Piper, as always, there's one quote of Piper every sermon. It's not a sermon. That's just a joke, but I just say it every week anyway. So here's what he says, and it's particularly helpful. It's particularly helpful. Um, first, let's understand it. Uh, the picture here is about maturity. When he says act like men, it's about maturity. So it's not men opposed to women. It's men, women, adults opposed to children. Act like, be manly. Act like adults, not children. So the issue is maturity. And Piper says, Christians in the West are weakened with wimpy worldviews. And wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. And so he's telling us, don't be a child. Don't be wimpy. Act like men. Act like adults. Be an adult in your faith, not a child. Now, sure, there's verses that say have childlike faith, but that just, that's talking about the, tr- the level of trust. But there is a maturity that we grow up into that he's telling us. So the best way to say it is grow up in the Lord. That's kind of what he's saying. When, when, you, when you, somebody yells at you to grow up, you're like, what? But in the Lord, in, in Jesus' name, right? Grow up in Jesus' name. And that's, that's what he's telling us. The last one's be strong. There's not necessarily any uh, exposition that has to do there. It's not obviously talking about weightlifting. Uh, but be strong. Be, be a strong person in the Lord. And then lastly, do all things in love. And this is recalling what we saw in 1 Corinthians 13. as he, When he was talking about the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 14, he puts in the, in the spiritual gift, the sandwich part is the, the verse on love trying to bind all those things together, recalling it as the ultimate Christian ethic for us is that we, we are loving people. Blomberg says, love without strength 
deteriorates into mere sentimentality. So we want to be loving and strong. And he says, love without strength deteriorates into mere sentimentality. Strength without love risks becoming tyrannical. So we want to be loving and strong. Be strong and loving. And so Paul emphasizes this for us. And now as he does that, uh, he's going to give us these examples of people who are doing these things, who have grown up in the Lord, who are being strong, being watchful, etc. First, you can look up to him in verses 5 through 11, and there's an example of how he is living his life, and Timothy, etc. And then there's some more examples following of people that are doing that, uh, which are these, are, these are written for us, seeking to, I think, put flesh on the bones of what it looks like to be that kind of person. Like I urge you, brothers, as you know, the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. If you remember back in uh, chapter 1 where Paul's like, I didn't baptize any of you. Well, I did baptize Stephanus. And other, but after that, no, and in him. But after that, I didn't baptize anybody. Remember that? Well, Stephanus was one of those people he listed as he baptized in, in chapter 1, verse 19. And so he's, I think he's holding up. Now, we don't know Stephanus, and there's nothing even more written about uh, Fortunaeus and Achaetus in the Bible. But these people knew them. And these people knew them as people that they can look to and say, there's an example of what you just exhorted us to. And I think that's what he's, he's pointing to people that have lived that way. Now, you don't know Stephanus or Fortunatus and Achaetus, but I guarantee you, you know somebody that embodies some of these imperatives. Think about who they are. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your pastor. I'm just kidding. Like, <laughs> like it's somebody you know, right? It's somebody you know. That's goofy, I'm sorry. But it's somebody you know, right? And he's, ta- he's saying, look to these people. I'm sorry. Look to these people and be refreshed and encouraged by them. Get around them and let them be people that refresh and encourage your spirit. For, look at, at verse, in verse 18. For they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. So we want to be around those people that refresh our spirits, encourage our spirits. But we want to be people, I know it's not a verb, that will gospel you. That will remind you of what Christ has done for you. And give you that strength um, that's only found in the good news of Jesus. And we want to be around them. And you can, the final greetings, there's not much that we can necessarily uh, exegete, but we'll read them. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla together with the churches in their house. Uh, hearty greetings. All the brothers and sisters greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm not sure that's coming back, but you can translate that. Greet everybody with a great hearty handshake. Um, uh, verse 21, I think that's kind of the equiv- cultural equivalent. Uh, I, Paul, write this greeting. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Hearkening, I think, even back again to verse 13 with much more strength that time. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. May the grace of our Lord be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes. Amen. And so we've seen some final conclusions here as Paul is wrapping it up. And so I just want to conclude this way. Uh, The Lord has, I think, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through this text, shown you some areas in your life that you can grow in just a practical way, whether it be through giving, whether it be through understanding the vastness of the good news of the gospel, whether it be through discipleship, um, or even just saying yes to that discipleship open door, I'm going to walk through it, I want to do it. Or even just looking at these final exhortations in verse 13 and 14 and saying, I want to be stronger, I want to stand firm in the faith, I want to uh, grow up in the Lord. Whatever the Holy Spirit's leading, I just ask that you be obedient to it. We're going to take these next moments over the next 15 or 20 minutes to take the Lord's Supper and worship together. And so 
as we do that, you'll have time and space to think and reflect. And maybe you need to sit for the first song. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to journal. However it is, take these next 10 to 15, 20 minutes as we take the Lord's Supper and worship together to think, pray, reflect. Maybe you want to ask your spouse or your friend that you came with to pray with you. That's fine. Uh, But use this time to not think about lunch or the NFL, but about Jesus and your walk with Christ and how the things that the Holy Spirit has told you today that you can start putting into practice in your life. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper where this is for believers only. If you're in Christ, this time is for you. Uh, Whenever you are ready, Jordan will be be singing a song. You can come forward, get the bread and get the cup and come back to your chair and we'll take the Lord's Supper corporately together. I'll lead us in that time and then... uh, Jordan will lead us in a time of worship through song. So however the Lord's leading and when he's leading, uh, respond in obedience. If you're not a believer in Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper, this time is not exactly for you like it is for the Christian. This time for you is a time of observation and being able to tangibly see the gospel and understand it. So let's let's, uh, pray and then we'll go into our time of response through the Lord's Supper and worship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that we will uh, receive it and desire to put it into practice. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and may we remember the good news of the gospel and be spiritually nourished by it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.